0: Well, hello, Eastridge, and every one of you. Uh, and in case somebody hasn't said it to you yet, welcome to Christmas time at Eastridge. You know, I told the, the uh, pastor's lunch last weekend that one of the things that kept me coming back and coming back and coming back, not that I ever left, uh, you've never gotten rid of me. Uh, Eastridge is how people love one another here and how we love other people. And I got a couple of things that are very Christmassy to talk about there. And that's the first one is, is that when you walked in this morning, Wasn't it cool to smell those trees and see the beautiful place that has been decorated? Those of you who uh, have done that for us, you were kind of loved on us, so thank you. That was just, that was awesome. It got me going. Yeah, go ahead. Thank thank you. Yep. Got my Christmas Jones going. And um, also... uh, want to say something to all of you, again, the generosity of this church always blows me away. At Christmas time, we do this, well, Thanksgiving and Christmas, we do this, this offering uh, that we call, it's a very New Testament thing, uh, we call it Overflow, and uh, Overflow has been going since uh, Thanksgiving week, and just, you know, that short period of time, we already have $6,160 in, yeah? Pretty good. That's, I mean, not just pretty good, that's great. That's ahead of schedule. That's just wonderful. And uh, there's still time if you want to get in. There's those of us who haven't done it yet. You can do it. Uh, we'll probably keep it open to the end of the year. The toggle will be on the website and the giving spot. Uh, or you can use an envelope or whatever if you haven't gotten in on it. Every gift counts. Every $49 counts. Uh, $20 of every 49 goes to India for Christ with Pastor Paul who was here last uh, month. Uh, or two months ago now, I guess. And uh, the other 20, another $20 goes to First Image here in Portland to help uh, women crisis pregnancies. And then uh, $9 of that $49 goes to The Family Room, helping families get back together out of the foster care system. All of them Christian ministries. Cool stuff is happening, and you're having a part of it. And that's just the great thing about Christmas time, is we get to spread the love all over, even outside these walls. So, way to go. Inside and outside, it's, it's going. And I really appreciate that. And since it's Christmas time, I want to start off in sort of an unconventional way this morning. One of the things you're taught in preaching classes you are never, never, never to quote somebody else, especially a preacher. But I feel so rebellious today, so i 'm going to do it anyway uh, the, uh, the, the The preacher I want to quote uh, is somebody I try to read this little passage of his teaching. I, I try to read it at Christmas time or Easter time every year uh, it's called um, the Person of Christ it 's who, who Christ is and it 's by a guy named James S. Stewart, not Jeremy Stewart, but James S. Stewart uh, because he uh, is a was a Scottish uh, theologian and preacher who died in 1990, but in 1999, Preaching Magazine, people who should know about these things, uh, elected him, nominated him, stated that he was the greatest preacher of the 20th century. And here's, the amazing thing about it is, as I read this, try to kind of just soak it in or close your eyes if it helps to listen. This is who Jesus is. I think he nails it. Uh, He nails the contrast. He nails the things we don't understand and the things we do uh, and the things we love and the things that we need to know more about. But he also kind of nails what we're already seeing unfold in the life of Jesus and the person of who Jesus is in the book of Mark so far. So it's a good summary of where we've been. Listen to this. He was the meekest and lowliness of all the sons of men, yet he spoke of the coming on the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming, yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable that children loved to play with him and the little ones nestled in his arms. His presence at the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the presence of sunshine. No one was half so compassionate to sinners, yet no one ever spoke such red-hot, scorching words about sin. A bruised reed he would not break. His whole life was love, and yet on one occasion he demanded of the Pharisees how they ever expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams and a seer of visions, yet for sheer stark realism, he has all our stark realists soundly beaten. He was a servant of all, washing the disciples' feet, yet masterfully he strode into the temple, and the hucksters and the money changers fell over one another to get away from the mad rush, in the mad rush, and the fire they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others. Yet at the last himself, he did not save. There is nothing in history like the union of contrast, which confronts us in the Gospels. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. Imagine being one of these disciples, and you're walking around the streets of Portland and Happy Valley with divine personality like that. And then think about this if Mark is correct, that this actually happened, if Paul and the rest of the New Testament is correct, that this is what it means, you are walking around in the divine presence and that kind of awesomeness already, since he's put foot on terra firma. And what's interesting is, is what we've seen in the book of Mark is the people that are hanging around him on first, those first days, They're starting to see something like that too. They're starting to believe that he's divine and something so extraordinary they can hardly handle it. And today in the story that we're going to look at, it's in Mark chapter 4, we're going to start at verse 35, you can look that up if you want to, otherwise it'll be in the screen. But in today's story, Jesus ups his authority. Remember we've been talking about his authority Uh, The kingdom of God, authority, that's authority over all these things. He's going to amp it up. The first of four stories that are going to amp it way, way up and show us just how powerful and how awesome he is. And just like that rendering from James Stewart, we're going to see that that deeply, deeply connects to just how intimately loving and caring he actually is. And it's a story of ships and boats and storms. And it starts like this. Verse 35, that day when, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. So we're going to have to stop here for a second. They're going to get in a boat in a minute. We need to describe this boat because we need to kind of describe the scene. And what's interesting is we don't have to think too hard about what this was like, what it looked like, how it worked, because here's the thing. There's this kibbutz, which is a, another a Hebrew word for a, a commune, a farming commune on the northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee. These disciples were over closer to the northeastern side uh, of the Sea of Galilee, uh, which today and and many years since has been called the Lake uh, Gennesaret. But they called it a sea because it was a huge body of water. It is a huge body of water. Uh, The disciples were over more on the northeast side by Capernaum. But over uh, by uh, the northwest side is a, this, this kibbutz called uh, Gemosor. And in 1986, they, the, the water was super low, and they, they noticed some ribs of, of wood coming out of, uh, of, the, of the mud that, where the water had receded. And they dug a little bit, and they realized, hey, this is an ancient boat. So it's really a, a long story and kind of a miracle of how they pulled it out. They want you to know that, so if you ever go to Israel, you'll, you'll get to see this. But they pulled it out and pulled it up, and, and, and today you can go see it. And here it is. It's 27 feet long. It's seven and a half feet wide. It's about four, four and a half feet on the gunnels on the side. You can see those are a little uh, corroded, so you can't really tell. But they're they're made. It's made out of cedar planks and then oak ribbing. And you can walk in and see this. We, every time we go to Israel, we see this thing. And and it is the boat, not the boat he was in, but it is the boat that they used in those days. Because here's the thing: carbon-14 dating puts it between 120 BC, before Christ. And uh, 40 A.D., okay? So Jesus was crucified uh, either in 30 or 33 A.D., we're not sure, but right in there, probably closer to 33. So this is exactly the kind of boat that they would have been on in the water. Was it Peter's boat? I have no idea. But this is what they would have been in. It held 15 people. You got 12 disciples plus Jesus, that's 13. Perfectly set. You can kind of picture that thing bobbing out there in the waves, right? And here's the interesting thing. These disciples weren't dummies with regard to the Sea of Galilee. They worked on it. They had their lives on it. And so when Jesus says, let's go over, what you need to understand is in the original language, that is in a grammatical form, uh, which has a specific title, where right away you see that word in the form that it's in, and you go, that's a command. Okay? It's meant for us to understand that Jesus commanded them to get in the boat. Now, we're not told why he had to command them to get in the boat. Like he didn't, he didn't like boss him around all the time. But this time he said, "Get in the boat. We're going go to go the other side." Okay, and uh, you know you begin to wonder why? Why would he say that? And in fact, Matthew, when he reports this, and Matthew was there too, he reports this as, as, as uh, Jesus giving orders to get in the boat. Here is what I think happened. This is don't try this at home. This is speculation. This is this is Dwayne's fully adulterated version of the New Testament. So here we go. So. You look at this, and, and, and what I think is going on is they're, they're fishermen. They're looking at a cold front coming from up north and a hot, hot, hot front coming from uh, about a lot of heat coming up from the southwest. And they know that when those clash, it's like taking a scoop out of the middle of the Sea of Galilee and goes, Poof. it's like, Jesus, we're we, we not sure we should get in the boat. Now, they probably didn't say it at this point because they hadn't known him that long, but they're looking at each other like, oh, my word. You know, really? Get in the boat. Just get in the boat. Yeah, but you know, I mean, they've seen this. They know what this is like. What's interesting is even today, fishermen, like if you go to Israel and and you want to go on a ride in the Sea of Galilee, there are days when they'll shut down those boats because it just gets too choppy. They they, they, they call it the winds that that scoop down, they call it the sharkia in Arabic. It means shark. That's the kind of thing these guys were facing. So you can see why Jesus would say he got to get in the boat. In fact, later on in Matthew, this, not this story, but the story where there's another storm and Jesus is walking on the water. It says Jesus made them and get in the boat. And that's an even more forceful command. It's like, you got to get in the boat because Jesus doesn't even go with them this time. He goes up on the mountain to pray. And it's like, Jesus, come on. You know, fool me once, but come on, get in the boat. So they get in the boat and again, a storm happens. That's the walk on the water thing, but we'll talk about that later. But here's the, that's, the, that's the situation that these guys are in, okay? That's the context. Look at verse 36, though. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was, because he was already standing in the boat teaching, in the boat, and there were also other boats with him. Now I've got to stop there. Why would they say there's other boats with him? Mark's the only one that says it, okay? There's, it's got no point to the story, The only reason to put this in here is that that's what Peter told him. Remember Peter speaking in Mark's ear because Mark was Peter's translator. The only reason is to say this actually happened. The boats. There wasn't just this one boat. There were other boats. A furious squall came up and the waves broke, sure enough, over the boat so that they were nearly Swamped. You can see how those waves would get up over the edge. See what happens here is this. You imagine it this way. Mount St. Helens is about forty miles that way by the, clo- by the way the crow flies. Okay. Mount Hermon is about thirty miles north of uh, of the uh, Sea of Galilee. And you kind of know how the winds, the east winds come down here. Well, these things could get really nasty because Mount Hermon is or 9,200 uh, feet high. M- Mount St. Helens anymore is only 8,300 feet high. Uh, but, you know, you, you can imagine if there's snow up there, the cold coming down. But then the, the, the weather from the south is, uh, uh, of the Sea of Galilee or the southwest, rather, is coming over desert, man. And it really heats up. We've actually seen it on some of our trips. little commercial here. Probably going to Israel again in August, late August of 2021. Just so you know, and you think in August, you got to be kidding me. Mm -mm. It's not any worse in August than it was in June. In June this year, or I guess you end of May this year, it was 112 in Galilee. That is rarely unusual. Don't expect that. It's coming to the trip anyway. But but what happens is when that happens, like it happened this year, when we were you know we were on an air conditioned bus, so it was you know big deal. But at night, man. As soon as we got off the bus, it was like, oh, I got to get in the water. So we'd go in the water at, at Sea Galley. We we're on the east side, and as this, this these air pockets collide, it would scoop up, and it makes pretty big waves. One year, we uh, we actually had waves that were over my head. We tried to quote body surf on them, right? And we almost lost Jerry, little Jerry Westover, but she was okay because she's a black belt in taekwondo. But so, they, they, you know, we that's the kind of thing these guys were facing out there. Is it's that kind of whipping, uh, you know, scooping storm that was causing these waves, as it says, to go over the edge. And it's this furious squall, you can translate it as, uh, as, as hurricane. It's, just, it's that kind of storm. So they're there, so, 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 so think about this, okay? Jesus makes them get in the boat and then he goes to sleep. Like, well, what's with that? I mean, if, if it wasn't such a dire situation and we didn't want to be nice to the disciples, it'd almost be funny because look at this. Verse 38, when Jesus was in the stern, remember that boat picture I said? There's, there's, there, you can't really see it in the picture, but there's these, uh, these slots where you can put like a little deck. You could either sleep on the deck in the front or the back or underneath it, okay? It says he was on a cushion, uh, sleeping on a cushion, and the disciples woke him and said to him, teacher. Don't you care if we drown? (laughs) It might sound sacrilegious, but think about this: Jesus is sleeping. Why is he sleeping? How can this be? I mean, these guys are starting to think that Jesus is the Son of God. They think that he's the Messiah. That he's got divine qualities. What's he doing sleeping in the storm? You know, bobbing and assuming the water's getting on him but he's just sleeping. I mean, what, what, what are they supposed to think, right? I mean, because here's the thing. This story is loaded with Old Testament references. I mean, it's loaded, loaded loaded, with Old Testament stories overlaid on it. This is just a few verses, right? There's only like six verses, but it's loaded with, uh, with stories about uh, or, or information from the Old Testament. For example, these guys would have known Psalm 121. Psalm 121, three to five, okay? And, and, and here's what it says about God in Psalm 121, three to five. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. <laughs> you know, don't, don't wake him, you know, don't wake him, Peter. Just, just leave him. John, he's sleeping in the front of the boat don't you remember psalm 121 if he, if he's god what's he doing sleeping right i mean you 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 begin to kind of get the feel for this which is a good it's a good time to ask a couple of questions the first one is this has jesus ever asked you to do did you sense god calling you to do something or go to somebody or to, where you get out there and you just feel like okay i'm out here all by myself are you there are you awake have you ever had that feeling I mean, this this offends our 21st century feelings on all kinds of levels. Isn't God supposed to run to our rescue when we say, come on, you know? I mean, really? I mean, these guys were way in deeper than that. I mean, how is this supposed to work? You know, and, and another question is, what do you do when your life seems to contradict the Bible or, as we have with Psalm 121, the Bible seems to contradict the Bible? What are you supposed to do with that? This is a good chance to do a little Bible study methods work right here, okay? Let me just give you three preliminary things, three preliminary statements of how to approach the seeming contradictions either in life or within the Bible itself. Here you go. If we believe that the Bible is truly the Word of God, which all genuine Christians do, try to harmonize the apparent contradictions, apparent with its whole message. In other words, pull back a little bit. Don't force it. Don't say, well, the Bible says it, so it must be true, because later on that's going to bite you in the back. So, but, but pull back and say, I'm not going to build a whole theology and build my whole belief about God on this one verse and this one translation and this one moment. I'm going to see how it fits into the whole message of God in the Bible. Okay? Because if you think about it, that only makes sense because he's God and we're not. He's the one whose ways are higher. His thoughts are higher. He's got bigger. He's got more knowledge. So how in the world could we expect from one sentence and our interpretation of that one sentence that somehow we're going to be able to harmonize everything? Okay, you won't. And sometimes you're going to have to wait a while and we'll get to that in the third one. But here, look at the second one. If you believe that God is truly greater than you, which all real Christians do, remind yourself that life situations can't change what's really real. Our lives and the situations of our lives are terrible, 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 awful, stinking. Did I say bad? Interpreters of scripture. Because they're just, we go all kinds of random places when we try to say, well, since this happened to me, God must be that, regardless of what it says in the Bible. Because he, again, is God, and we're not. And thirdly, If you believe that Jesus is the true king of the world, and definitely all real Christians do that, be willing to serve him by waiting patiently, because the answer might not be there that second. Does that mean he's absent from you? No. Does that mean he doesn't love you? No. Does that not mean that his love can't feed you in that moment, even while you're waiting? Oh, absolutely not. In fact, maybe you're more open to it than you would be otherwise. But that's the reality of, you know, so-called contradictions in our in our bibles or in our lives with our bible. So that 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 I think is, is something to, to to understand here. But again, back to the question of why is Jesus sleeping? Why is he sleeping? I mean, think about this. I mean, first of all, he's 100% God, but he's also 100% human. And he's it's an exhausting time. So that should be encouraging too. He's feeling some of our weakness that we feel when, when we're tired. Secondly, It's an illustration of trust, isn't it? If you can sleep during the storms, some of you have got that gift. I see you sleeping on Sunday mornings. (laughs) There's someone in my house whom I love very much. In fact, sleeps in the same bedroom as me. No matter what's happening. I mean, what's happening. We can just be talking about the biggest crisis in the world. 30 seconds, head hits the pillow. Conk. Not me, man. I do not have, I'm jealous. I, I've tried to get her to teach me how to do that. I can't. Just turn off your mind. I can't. You know? And, and, but, but the thing is, is that, you know, what that is, is not a not caring. That is actually a trust. A deep level of God's got this, no matter what it is. All right? And that's exactly what Jesus is displaying here. But I think there's even a bigger, deeper lesson for us. And this is a lesson for Christians and non-Christians, insiders and outsiders, as we've been talking about, because that's how Mark talks about it, insiders and outsiders. What if the storms of life answer the why question? You know what the why question is? God, why? We always want to know why. We want to know, what are you trying to teach me? What do you want me to do? Because here's the thing. If there's a fix it button on you that I can push God, I'm going to find it and push it right? I mean, all of us are that way. Christians and non. I mean, that's just our tendency, right? So, But what if the storms aren't meant to, you know, for any of that? What if the answer to the why question is just simply because it's an invitation to faith? It's not a test of your faith. It's an invitation to rest as Jesus is resting in the midst of the storm because God has got this. What if that's what it is? I think that's what this is supposed to be telling us. I think this is, that's what we're supposed to understand from this. That he's got all of this. And that seems to be the way it is next. I mean, because look how Jesus deals with these disciples. He doesn't, you know, disabuse himself of them. He doesn't yell at them. He doesn't do any of that. He, he You know, he, he just, as it says here uh, in verse uh, 39, he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, quiet, be still. And then the wind, the wind died down. It's almost a you know, contrast. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. <laughs> I mean, he, he, why, why didn't he just stand up and say, all right, knock it off. Why did he say anything at all? Why didn't he just go like that? Why did he take this more humble approach, this kinder approach, because he understood where these guys were coming from and the world that they were living in. They didn't understand that the word, the real world they were living in at the time. In fact, again, there's an Old Testament description of what's happening here. And it, it, even, it even goes in a little deeper um, than... Uh, than the story is here. I mean, Mark's the one that does, does this most profoundly and most graphically. But turn, turn, if you've got a Bible or you can read it off the screen, Psalm 107. Because Psalm 107, I'm not saying this is a prophecy. I'm saying that this is something these fishermen would have known, this psalm. This is like the fisherman's psalm. This is the seagoer's psalm. You may have heard these words because people have used them. They've put them on their walls and so forth and so on. But it describes exactly what's happening here, including how these disciples were feeling. Verse 23 of Psalm 107. Some went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up the tempest by lifting up high the, wa- the waves. Oh, so he, he stirred it up? They mounted up on the to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wits end, which is what they were, which is what we are sometimes in the storms. But look what they did. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper and the waves of the sea we're hushed. <laughs> That's life, right there. That's what these guys' lives at this moment were. But what it's trying to tell us is that our God, Jesus God, the God Man, has complete control and authority over nature. He has complete control and authority over every part of nature, every ology that you can think of, you can think of, or I can think of, biology physiology, anthropology, physics, quantum, if there is such a thing. All of it. He's got control over that because he's got control over the created order because it's created by him. The thing that we call the world, he's got control over it. That's what it's trying to say. But here's the thing. What this is saying too is not only has he got this, is that if he has to use a storm to bring history and your life and my life and his church family to his desired ends, the ends that he has planned for us from long, long ago, if that's what he needs to do to bring us to that end, that's exactly what he's going to do. He's going to use it. Why? Because he loves us too much to just let that go, let us go down the path we're on. So, he's going to send us through that storm for that invitation to trust him. And here's the other thing if he's all that powerful, he can make sure it doesn't go too far and in any way circumvents his preferred future for you and for me and for us or for Peter, James, John, and Bartholomew and the rest of the boys. That's the reality that is being told us here. And there's a a little known fact in this story that's also all over the Old Testament and to some degree in the Gospels at least and in the New Testament. And and, and it's this, this word still plays a big part. The one that Jesus used to say be still plays a big part in the Bible. For example, look at these two Old Testament verses. Again, one is a famous verse from Psalm 46. You probably have heard this before. It's it's on the wall over uh, up above our bed. He says, God says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. So there's an invitation to be still. What does that mean? Well, let's dig a little further. There's another verse that's less uh, known that uses this word still but, and sort of famously. It has to do with when the Israelites left Egypt. Remember that story in Exodus? Pharaoh says, okay, go away, go, go, go. We'll let you go after the plagues. So they run out into the desert. They get to the Red Sea and, and they're stuck there, right? I mean, there's the whole body of water in front of them. So Moses asked God, what do you want us to do? God says, I want you to camp right here. So they camp there, and there's a pillar of fire at night and, and a cloud by day that's leading them. And, and, and they're, they're, they're most likely at the end of a wadi, which is a giant desert canyon where water used to flow and sometimes still does in flash floods, but it's just right, right next to the, on the big giant beach next to the Red Sea. But then Pharaoh changes his mind, and the, the, the Egyptians start running down, and they can see the cloud of the Egyptians coming. They're going, oh, no, no. So God, uh, Moses goes to God again, and God tells him what he wants them to do. He wants you to put the staff in the water and so forth and so on. But, the, but they don't know that. You know, Moses has got insider information. So he comes to them, and he says this. And he's trying to explain it because they're, they're, they're so beside themselves. He says, the Lord, that is Yahweh God, will fight for you. You have only to be silent and the word to be silent could also be translated still. It's the exact same word as Psalm 46:10, or the Greek word, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Jesus' day, is the exact word of "be still, be quiet to the waves." So it can be translated silence. It can be translated quiet. It can be translated cease, or my personal favorite, do nothing. But it's not the kind of do nothing that I think of or you think of first. It's not like okay, I'm I forget you God. Just gonna, I'm not doing nothing. Nope. It's don't do anything to get in the way of His good purposes because you're going to miss out. You're going to want to see this. That is the reality of being still before God. In fact, it goes on in a story to describe what this stillness. Uh, results in and what happens. Because the next thing that happens is Jesus asks a couple of questions of his own. And he's not just asking him them to be, you know, poking them. He's asking them, because it becomes obvious by the time you get to the end of this thing, that he's trying to lead them into something. But at first, these questions must have seemed kind of abrupt and in their face, right? He goes like this. He says, he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Um... Jesus, we're standing in two feet of water right here. Do you still have no faith? Isn't that interesting? It's back to that question of what if the storm is just an invitation to faith? I gave you the biggest invitation I could. Look at this. (laughs) What's interesting is there's another little-known theme in the New Testament especially, and it's this. Knowledge of God, or, or, or lack of knowledge is not what keeps you from God, it's not, it's fear. This word fear here could be translated losing heart. Why are you afraid? Why are you losing heart? It could be translated cowardice. Cowardice and fear are what keep us from God. Because if it was lack of knowledge, then in order to be a Christian and in order to be his follower, you would have to have a certain level of knowledge. And God would have told us in the Bible, if you have this level of knowledge, you can come to me. How many, you know, who knew all the answers to all their questions when they became a Christian? Not me. In fact, I had a whole bunch more questions, right? So it's not about the knowledge. Nothing wrong with knowledge. You won't grow without the biblical knowledge. We'll get to that in a minute. But it's about the saying, you know what? I don't understand at all, but I am not going to be afraid to trust you. And, and, and so Jesus is really being gentle here. He's not being, being um, cruel or mean. He's also uh, talking a bit more than about what it means to be still, to be still. It, it means this. Look at, think of it this way. There's a difference between slowing down to relax, that kind of stillness, and coming to a stop because you're in the presence of overwhelming awesomeness. right? And here's the interesting thing about that. If the Old Testament prophecies are true, if Jesus' teaching is true, if the worldview that is displayed in the writings of Paul and the expectations that are written into the Bible in the book of Revelation are all what we should be focusing on enough, they're all true, then you and I right now, since Jesus put foot on terra firma, are already in the presence of that kind of powerful awesomeness. And the reality is, the first kind of stillness where you just slow down and relax, that's not bad. That's restorative at a certain level. But the second one where you're in the presence of awesomeness and you just get still because there's nothing left to do, because that's who he is when you meet him that way, that's life changing. Not just restorative so you can go another week and bash your head in. That's life changing. And that's the kind of thing that Jesus offers us. And it's because of that, that there are all kinds of stillness that can you know, be the result of encountering Jesus in a real way. For example, think of him this way. There's calm, which is you know, the, uh, you know, the, the sort of inner sense of calm. That's, that's what Jesus obviously had when he wants to give these disciples when he wants to give us. There's also fear, as in awe. That's the, that's the sense of stillness in front of awesomeness the awesome power there's fear as in terror we'll define that in a minute because terror is a word that we use in all kinds of uh, other ways than is meant here in the bible here but this is like a repulsive kind of thing that's not it could be let me let me just speculate here it could be that one of the reasons why you feel pushback while i might feel pushback in this post-christian age among people when we they find out that we're christians the, the, the possibility is, is that the strength of that pushback isn't what they really mean to do. Because the strength of that pushback is more this kind of, oh my gosh, that can't be true. Please, there's actually somebody on the planet that believes that there's a God that's that powerful. That's awesome. That, is that, please, oh no. That's the terror this, this is. okay. Fourthly, it can cause you just to be, you can be still because you're worn out. Giving up. That's not the kind of stillness Jesus is going for. You can be still because you're giving up. If it's giving up in the sense of, I can't, God, but you can't, you can. You're God, I'm not. If it's that kind, then yeah, that's the kind he's going for. And finally, the realization of reality that, yes, you, in fact, are God. You are in control of all things, the storms and the sunshine, everything. You're in charge of all of it in my life. And look, you got me here. That's the realization. All of these, discovering the truth about Jesus can bring on all of them at some point. And Jesus can use any one of those, even, though, even the ones that aren't really good ones, he can even use those and turn them around for good in your life and my life. And that's, that's what the disciples are beginning to realize, but remember, let's cut them some slack. We've heard these stories since we were in Sunday school and so forth and so on. These guys, first time out. This is their first time on. And so here's what happens as a result. Verse 41, they were terrified. Jesus asked the question, and they say, oh, okay, we get it, Jesus. Nope, they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Okay, they're starting to dawn on them like, okay, this isn't just Jesus, the divine Messiah one. This is somebody, this, like, this is really him. Well, it can't be, can't be. Well, then who, then who in the world could actually pull that off. You know, I mean, they're starting to have discussion. We know that because later on we're gonna see they're having discussions among themselves. <laughs> but Jesus always knows what they're saying. They try to keep it quiet, but they can't. But who is this is, is the question. It's the question that we saw from the very beginning in the book of Mark in chapter one, verse 27. The crowd said, who is this? P, P, Jesus couldn't go anywhere without somebody saying, who are you? you know, because that's the kind of God he is. And that's the, that's the encounter with the numinous. That's the counter. with the awesomeness. And, and a reasonable result is this business of fear. But I want you to know that I'm not sure terror is, or being in terror is the best translation of this, being terrified. Because we think of terror as something bad people do. And that's not what this is. This is a sense of, um, of this, I am undone, <laughs> I, I, I really can't pull anything else. I got no answer for this. That's what this is. It's a sense of awesomeness, right? In fact, this is an interesting word. The, the word terrified is actually a compound of three words. First of all, the storm was a mega storm. That's the word that's used in the Greek, mega. Didn't know if that's a Greek, didn't know if you knew that's a Greek word? It is. Go and press your friends, you know Greek, Mega. Then the calm that Jesus calls out, it was mega calm. This is, they feared a mega fear. They feared a great fear. And that precise phrase, It's a Hebrew idiom, so it it makes it sound more like original of what they would have been saying at the time. It was a Hebrew idiom. It's the exact phrase, the exact words that is used by Luke in Luke chapter 2, verse 9, when he tells us what the shepherds were feeling and experiencing when this angel shows up, boop, in the darkness and says, oh, there's a Savior born to you in Bethlehem. You should go check it out. They feared a great fear on their face. This is beyond us. What in the world is this? Who is this? Anyway, that's what these guys were feeling. But the quick change on that, as we will see, as we go through the story, is that God takes the irony of this. He takes the irony of being more afraid of God and his presence than afraid of the storm. And he almost immediately turns it to, yeah, but I am God and I love you. That's why I'm here. And it almost immediately turns it around. It's just like anybody when you're confronted with your own sin and so forth. It's almost like, what are you doing here? Well, I'm here to renew you. I'm here to make you a new person. I'm here to help. I'm here to free you from your sin. Oh, I kind of like that. I mean, it's that kind of turn. It's that kind of, oh, all is lost. No, it's not. Everything could be possible. That kind of quick turn. That's what this kind of fear, a great fear is. Is in here. I, I told you a couple of weeks ago that I'm reading a book that was blowing up my mind. It's still erupting, okay? It's uh, like Vesuvius here. It's going on and on. I'm only in it a couple of chapters, but it's by Mark Sayers. It's called The Reappearing Church, and it's so refreshing to read a book that doesn't all about how all is lost, all is done, the culture's going to kill us. So it, it's the opposite of that, okay? It's so good to read one that's refreshing. And, um, Here's what he says about this renewal that God wants to bring into our lives and into our world. Renewal is built into the fabric of our world. Since the fall, God has been in the renewal business. That is since the fall of Adam and Eve. We intuitively sense this. Everybody understands that something is wrong in the world. Believers and non-believers alike. And desires a better future. Everybody does, don't they? We hope that our lives and our culture are better tomorrow than they are today. We naturally try to move toward renewal. We either yearn for renewal or lament its absence. Yet, without God, our flesh driven renewal programs, the ones that we humans can come up with in our mortal sense, both personal and corporate, will bring more harm than good. God is profoundly relational. He has created. He created you to spread His presence into the world, and He is intent on inviting you into His mission in the world. That's the invitation of the storm. He's inviting you into His his invitation into His mission in the world. And isn't it true that we all long for that kind of renewal, for a better future, for a preferred future? I mean remember back in Psalm 107, it says, they cried out in the middle of the storm. What if we cried out? God, in the middle of this cultural storm, God, if you need to change me, whatever you need to do, just change us, make us new and make our country new, make our world new. What if we did that? What if that's the whole program? It's as simple and straightforward as that. That's, that's the only renewal plan that God's got. And it's the only one that will ever work. Because if you think about it, ever since the beginning, ever since Adam and Eve fell, ever since the beginning of the, the biblical story, ever since the beginning of history, there have been one attempt after another, after another, after another to get back to Utopia of Eden. Even even secular historians will tell you that that a lot of history is trying to get back to Eden, the utopia of it all. I mean, the first one was building a tower to temple at, or to tower to heaven at, 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 um, in Babel. Then there were eternal empires, like the Roman Empire was supposed to be in Jesus' time. That it'll never go away. A couple hundred years later, Christianity took it down. And, and, and there were, or, you know, the wars, there have been wars to end all wars. There have been attempts to make the perfect human being. In the early 20th century, it came to be known as eugenics. There there are attempts today to to fix, you know, make things utopia again. And, you know, I know what we need. We need a a sexual revolution. And to free up anybody to do whatever they want, that'll make it perfect. Or even the revolution, or even the attempt at making things perfect again in the making America great again. Please understand me. I'm not not dissing the intents of wanting that better. Preferred future that God has promised. I'm just saying that when we take it into our hands and try to figure it out without God, it always winds up with disaster because the devil likes half baked plans, and all of man's plans are half baked because we just don't have the bandwidth to figure out what's going to change everything and bring us all back to utopia again. And so Jesus said, a far better way is to just get on your knees and say, You are God, and I am not. And that's the invitation to faith. So how do you get still in that way? How do we, in a practical level, how do we, how do we apply that to our lives like this week and t- today and, and going forward? Well, if we're going to get still, one of the best places to hear Jesus and encounter Jesus is right here, your Bible. That's why he gave it to us. And if you're not in it regularly, you're not going to encounter him regularly. This is where it is. This is his letter to you. This is, this is a letter to us, to his family, his church family, to his people, to his church. And to you and I as individuals, this is what it's for. And you know, you may not get the answer to every question every day. In fact, I can guarantee you, you won't, but you will get answers to questions you didn't think you had. And you will get answers at surprising times from places you didn't think it had in here. So read your Bible. Have some quiet time. Do some devotions. Memorize some verses. Maybe... Go to that person that you've been putting off going to because there's an estrangement or you, you need to tell them how you're feeling about them and so forth. And just you'll be honest about it. Go, go straight to them. And then watch for Jesus to show up in that storm. Or deal with that situation you don't really want to deal with at work or at school or whatever it is or in your family. And, 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 and then watch for Jesus to show up in that storm. What else can you do to get still? Did I say read your Bible? I mean, you know, spend some time in the Bible. Meditate on your Bible. Because it's not just a Bible. It's not just a book. It's the Word of God. So that's where you encounter Him. But before you do any of this, and and regardless of what it is, what God's calling you to do in in terms of being still about something, being still in the way that is, uh, you know, in awe of His awesomeness, not in the still in the way of, I give up, I'm just going to go to, just kind of check out. Here's here's a little prayer I think that'd be helpful for that process and to make sure it's the right thing. Here it is. Lord Jesus, give me the courage to see you here in my life in this moment today. That'd be a good way to start the day, really. Lord Jesus, give me the courage to see you here because sometimes it takes courage to admit that he's there in my life, in this moment, today. And he loves, loves, loves answering that prayer. You know, when you came in here today, you probably thought about a favorite, Christian, or favorite Christmas song of, of many people. In fact, this is the favorite Christmas song of someone I love very much. Um, it's called Still, Still, Still. And it was uh, written by a, a guy, but his first name was Maria, okay? A guy, Maria Vincennes Sub or Sub, I think you say. He's a Viennese guy. Back in 1865, he wrote this thing. He died about three years later. Uh, so it's that time frame of his life. But he wrote this song called Still, Still, Still. Then it was rewritten. The lyrics were rewritten in the 20th century. So think we think it's about snow, but it's not about snow. Nothing wrong with snow, but it's not about snow. Uh, um, in fact, in the original uh, German, it was six verses. And, and please understand, I'm not going to ruin anybody's Christmas by either singing it or trying to quote the German, okay? We're good. But I want to read for you three of the, uh, those verses, original verses in English, okay? To see what is this really about anyway. And as the band comes out, just listen to these words, if, if it helps. Listen to think. Close your eyes. I know your eyes are on the screen. Still, still, still. One can hear the falling snow. For all is hushed. The world is sleeping. Holy star, its vigil keeping. Still, still, still. One can hear the falling snow. Sleep. Sleep, sleep, seen that. Tis the eve of our Savior's birth. In other words, God's got this. The night is peaceful all around you. Close your eyes. Let sleep surround you. Sleep, sleep, sleep. Tis the eve of our Savior's birth. Dream, dream, dream of the joyous day to come. While guardian angels without number Watch you as you sweetly slumber. Dream, dream, dream of the joyous day to come. It's about the infant coming to earth in Jesus. That took a lot of courage too, didn't it? And it's about that that willingness to say, God, you have got this. So I'm going to be still. I'm going to rest in you. The real rest, the rest that doesn't just, you know, pump me up for another day or two or three or a week, but the kind of rest that changes my life. That is what the song is about, not snow. It's about saying, God, would you take off the blinders for me? Would you take off the fear for me? Would you take off whatever it is that's keeping me from seeing your awesome presence in my life that has worked again and again and again and kept me here all this time and kept us here as a church all this time and, and you know, built up my family and built up your church family. All that, let me see it as it really is and help me rest and be still in that. That's what it's about. And that's what this story about. When Jesus calls us to stillness. Let me pray for us as we go to the Lord's table, communion. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We praise you. We thank you for sending your Son. And for how you've invited us into that mission of making the new, the world new. You've invited us not with a list of things we gotta do and all this work, but just one thing, trust you. Trust you with the kind of trust that brings about stillness, that is a calm that's not a do-nothing calm, but a calm that moves forward in exactly what you've called us to, knowing that you are gonna do what you have said you will do. I pray that all of us, regardless of where we're at, will be in that frame of mind. Because some of us are here, Lord, and we got some serious storms, and you know they're serious. But Lord, would you just show those of us who need to hear today that deep love, that deep grounding, that nothing is gonna take us down. Nothing will take us away. And would would you just help us understand that you're a God who loves us so much the one whom you love the most, supposedly, your son. After praying all night so hard that he sweat blood, he went to the cross anyway. That's a serious storm. That's a serious mess and hardship on life. The worst ever, really. And yet you brought him through, and you asked him to do that for the sake of, of renewing us, changing us, forgiving our sin, and making us new. May the impact and the profound nature of that just impact us as we go to your table today. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for being here, then and right now. Amen.